was 19 years old, there was a time when I seriously thought that God had abandoned me. Uh, of all the places that it could have happened, it happened to me on a church mission trip, a mission trip with our church here. I had just graduated from high school, and I was with a team of other students visiting the Netherlands. And uh, near the end of the week, even though it had been a great trip, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it, I was very tired, and there was something inside of me that night that just felt kind of empty. Uh, Our team had gathered together for one of the final times in a restaurant, and we were on the top floor together, and everybody was sharing what they'd learned and seen and, and what God had done in their lives and in other people's lives. And for everybody except for me, I think, it was a very meaningful time. Um, but as the night went on, I felt myself feeling just more and more distant. And I started to experience this kind of gloominess that was seeping into my heart. And at first, I I wasn't really able to pinpoint where it was coming from. But then I, I remember realizing finally that it was the feeling that God just was not there for me anymore. Uh, I, I had this overwhelming sense, it's hard to explain, that God had just kind of gone away and he had, he had left me. And I remember when I realized that this is where that gloom was coming from, I, I couldn't contain it. And uh, in my seat in front of everyone, I just started sobbing uncontrollably. And I was really embarrassed. I didn't say anything. I just got up and I went to leave to go outside. I thought, I'm just going to go downstairs and, and get some air. And when I went to go downstairs, I didn't realize it was an old restaurant and it had a very low ceiling down the stairs and there was this great big wooden beam. And as I walked down, I knocked my head really hard right into that beam and everybody in the room went, oh, you know. And now my head hurt. And I was humiliated, and worst of all, I I was more certain than ever that God had just deserted me. Have have you ever experienced something like this before? Have you ever wondered if God had had deserted you? And do you remember what that felt like? you remember what the situation was? Do you remember how it was that you came to the conclusion that God was just suddenly absent uh, in your life? Well, uh, fortunately, in in my case, it didn't last for very long. I think if I had to diagnose it today, I'd say, looking back on it, that I I was just exhausted. I I was exhausted from the week. And I think that out of that exhaustion, I'd drawn some conclusions about God that felt overwhelmingly true at the time, but were not true. They could never be true. The Bible teaches us that God will never abandon his children. And one of the hundreds and hundreds of places, maybe thousands of places in the scripture where this truth rises up to the surface like a balloon that's been released underwater is uh, the story of Joseph. This morning we're going to pick back up with part three of this epic life that Joseph lived And we've seen uh, so far that this young man has been told by God through a a series of dreams that his life is going to have deep significance, that he's one day going to rule over his 11 brothers and his father and his mother. This man's life is destined for greatness. God has told him 
And yet, uh, Joseph, as we find him now, is not exactly living the dream. In fact, his actual life experience, to the contrary, is really more like a nightmare. Uh, His brothers despised him so much that they attempted to murder him. And instead, they decide to sell him as a slave to gain a little bit of of, of silver coins out of the deal. Uh, His beloved father thought he was dead, and now he'd been dragged off by these slave traders far from home all the way through a desert to Egypt, which would have been a very difficult journey of about 300 miles. So this morning, we arrive in the next section of uh, the story. We're going to get to see what happens next. And it's a story that I don't think ever stops being exciting. It's interesting. Everything that happens to him is really incredible. But today we're going to look at chapter 39. And chapter 39 breaks breaks down into three different scenes. And we'll label them as this. As Act 1, life in Potiphar's house. Act 2, assault by Potiphar's wife. And Act 3, imprisoned by Potiphar's command. Life in Potiphar's house, assault by Potiphar's wife, imprisoned by Potiphar's command. So let's start by taking a look at what Devin read for us. I'm going to let him do a lot of the heavy reading on the heavy lifting on the reading today for for time's sake, but I do want to point out a few things uh, directly from uh, the text. The scene opens up by bringing us up to date on Joseph's situation. We discover that he's been purchased by this man whose name is Potiphar, and now he's in the exact opposite uh, position of where his dreams said he would be. He's not a ruler over anyone. He's a slave. And every single thing that he had has been lost. His home, his family, his land, his pride, every semblance of security that he had in life, even the man's own language was lost. He would have to learn another one in uh, Egypt. We can only imagine how lonesome Joseph must have felt uh, in this strange home, particularly the first two few months, and, and wonder if perhaps he too felt that God had abandoned him. But the narrator quickly assures us that God has not forgotten him at all. Look at uh, verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, it says. Now, wait a minute. How can the author say that the Lord was with Joseph? If the Lord was with Joseph, wouldn't Joseph still be at home in his bed? His own bed? If the Lord was with Joseph... Would his brothers really have attempted to murder him and then, worse off, sell him for money? And if the Lord was with him, then why was he a slave? How could these things have happened? Well, apparently we can draw the conclusion that just because a person is facing adversity and trial doesn't mean that the Lord is not with them. It's so easy to make determinations about God's presence or his lack thereof in our lives based on the evidence of the circumstances around us. But one of the underlying messages of the entire story of Joseph is don't do that. Don't take your situation, no matter how good it might be or no matter how lousy it might be, and use that to render a verdict on the degree of God's involvement in your life. 
if we look at the story of Joseph so far, from the perspectives of circumstances, we would have to conclude that the Lord is not with Joseph at all. How could he be? We would have to think that God has abandoned him. So how do we know that God really is with Joseph? And how do we know that he's with us in our lives as well? Well, That's the question I want to think about this morning. And that's a direct question I actually want to come back to later. But for now, one of the ways that we see God's involvement in his life is through God's guidance, his, his providential guidance of each of Joseph's steps. Now, the passage gives us uh, two clues as to what God is up to here. And Potiphar's position is the first clue. The description of of Potiphar, the text says that not only was he an Egyptian, but he was an officer of the Pharaoh, and in fact, the captain of his guard. And this is the first glimmer of a connection to the king of Egypt in the story. God is quietly steering Joseph's life in the background, in the direction of the Pharaoh, and his relationship with Potiphar is going to become a critical stepping stone for that. But another piece of evidence that God is with Joseph is that Potiphar himself saw that and he believed it. Uh, Potiphar noticed that the Lord was making Joseph successful in everything that he did. And so Potiphar decided to do something with Joseph that was very wise. He gave him a promotion. And so rather than spending his time out in the field sweating and toiling, Joseph was made to be Potiphar's assistant. He was put in charge of the entire household, and it tells us that Joseph managed almost every aspect of Potiphar's life except for the food that he ate. So apparently Joseph was a lousy cook, I guess. Other than that, though, Joseph was responsible, and and this was a tremendous advancement for somebody who'd started out at the very lowest rung of the household ladder without even knowing the language. Kind of amazing. But there's something that's really wonderful about the success and blessing that Potiphar experienced through Joseph, and that is that it's meant to take us back to a promise that was given three generations prior to this event, to Joseph's great-grandfather, who was a man named Abraham. And God had said to Abraham that through Abraham, that is through his descendants, all of the families on earth will be blessed. And now here, these three generations out from that promise, this Egyptian officer, Potiphar, is receiving the benefits of that blessing through his connection with Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. You see, God's promises are not just built to endure over a lifetime, over your lifetime or my lifetime. They're built to endure over generations. God's commitment to fulfill the things that he said, sometimes not measured by years, it's measured by centuries and millennium. And the ultimate fulfillment of this promise of blessing that was made to Abraham, that Potiphar tasted three generations later, would, would come to be fulfilled completely 42 generations later 
when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was born in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem. And, and if you, this morning, count Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior, the one who's rescued you from your sins and, and your hope and your future and, and your strength, then that same blessing that Potiphar experienced through Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, is yours through Abraham's 42nd grandson, Jesus. You see, God's work in the story of Joseph It continues all the way across generations and history into our lives as well. Well, anyhow, thanks to God's faithfulness, what we find at the beginning of Act 1 is that things are looking up for Joseph. Uh, Joseph is thriving in his position. God is clearly with him and giving him success. He's found favor in the sight of Potiphar. The sun has risen in his life and the gloom of his past is slowly burning away. And that's life in Potiphar's house. But not for long. Unfortunately, Act chapter uh, Act 2 is coming, and Act 2 is not nearly as cheerful. So let's look at Act 2, the assault by Potiphar's wife. Now, at the time that all of this uh, occurred, Joseph was likely in his early 20s. And we're told that he was a good-looking guy who was in great shape. Very handsome, the text says, both in his form and his appearance. Apparently, one of the perks of working for Potiphar was that he threw in a gym membership. And uh, Joseph took advantage of that. But it wasn't long before Potiphar's wife began to notice him. And eventually, she asks Joseph to go to bed with her. Uh, In fact... Uh, Not only does she ask him to do this, but if you look at her words, lie with me, she's not asking. She's, in fact, ordering him to go to bed with her. This was a command. And as uh, all could imagine, this was probably a very tempting situation for this young man who was far away from home. But Joseph refuses to do this. Now, why? Why does Joseph refuse this? It might have helped him out, actually. He could have received some benefit from it. She could have made life easier for him, perhaps. Uh, It would have been pleasurable for him to enjoy this relationship. And he could have justified it by saying, I was just following orders. She didn't ask me to do this. She told me to do this. I'm a slave. She's the master. I had to do this thing. But we're told that he didn't do that. We're told that what he said was this. He said in verse 8, Behold, he said this to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, these words tell us three things that were happening in Joseph's heart. They they came out of something. These these words were were roots that sprung out of a certain kind of heart soil. First, uh, he says, his first reason that he wouldn't do this thing was that it would violate the trust of his master, Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar is portrayed in this passage as a good man who 
looks out for Joseph and, um, and, and brings him up, promotes him. And we find that Joseph just doesn't have the heart to betray him. Secondly, <clears throat> it says that Joseph would not do this for the sake of Potiphar's wife herself. Okay, So he doesn't just not do it because of Potiphar's sake. He doesn't do it because of her sake. He says, Potiphar has kept nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. I want you to think about what Joseph is is trying to do here. Joseph is trying to maintain her marriage commitment to Potiphar even though she is scheming to throw it away. Joseph here is more committed to this woman's marriage even than she is. And even though this uh, woman was a willing party to this affair and had given to it her full consent, Joseph refuses to do this not only on Potiphar's account, but on hers. He defends the integrity that this woman doesn't have. He, He treats this woman with a dignity that she's acting beneath. What you find here, I think, is that Joseph is trying to protect her from who? Herself. I I read somebody who who said that um, this isn't really very relatable. Um, They said, you know, most men don't find themselves in a situation where there's a woman that's trying to drag them into bed. And I thought that was an interesting comment, but... I think this is very relatable to to everyone. I want to say just a few brief comments about this, even though it's not the theme of my sermon. Um, And I want to talk about screens. Uh, I think think this really relates to screens nowadays. When when a person watches a sexually explicit television show or a movie or views pornography, they put themselves, I think, in a situation that is so very similar to this one right here. Uh, on the screen, there's a woman or a man. It could be, it could be a man, but I'm going to use a, a woman in, in this example who is perfectly willing to reveal herself to you, right? She's offering her body, uh, much like this woman was offering hers to Joseph, and she's given consent, Apparently, she's okay with it. And we know that apparently she's okay with it because she's filled out the paperwork, right, and and agreed to the scene, and she's going to get a check in the mail that's going to come later. She's all right with it. But this woman who's, who's on this screen, even though obviously she's just acting in that scene, she herself is not pretend, right? She herself is a real person who lives a real life someplace in the world. She has a heart and a soul and a name and a history. She has friends who love her. She has parents. She possibly has a spouse. None of this a person would know, but uh, uh, she's a real person, so these things must be true for her. And, And when a person resists the temptation to watch what she's doing, then... Just like Joseph, what they're doing is defending this woman's integrity and valuing her dignity, even if these things apparently are no concern to her. 
I think that our culture has, has really lost the sense that it's our job to safeguard another person, to, to treat other people, even a very distant and faraway person that we would never meet who's performing on a screen, to treat that person as if they, they really matter, as if they really do have an eternal soul and are an image bearer of the God who loves them and cares for them and wants what's right and good and best for them. I think like Joseph, Christians ought to be the first people to protect others, even distant people, from themselves. And and he sets such a good example for us here. Well, the third reason that Joseph gives for not sleeping with Potiphar's wife is probably the most important in the sense that it tells us the most about Joseph and and his heart. And it's in verse 9, the second part of verse 9. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, what I want to do is I want to just note four things about this statement and draw kind of like four little mini lessons from it for us The first of the four is this. Uh, This is the first time in the whole story that God's name is spoken. This is it. This is the first time somebody says God's name. And it's here for the first time that we learn that Joseph is a man of faith. We didn't necessarily know that in in chapter 37. We find that out here. And on top of being a, a man of faith... Joseph seems to be a man who really honors God. In fact, I think you could say Joseph is a man who treasures God. And as a result of that, we learn from his words that Joseph would be sickened at the thought of sinning against God like this. He would be mortified if he thought that God were to see him doing this thing. And Joseph, his words show us here that he's less concerned that going to bed with Potiphar's wife would be breaking some kind of protocol and much more concerned that if he did this thing, it would break God's heart. And in a world where so often people kind of think about what they can get away with, how far they can go before God notices, what they can do to push the the, the boundaries, I think this kind of of, of genuine esteeming and honoring God, this, this tenderness of heart that Joseph shows towards the Lord is so refreshing. This is not a man who's just religious. This is a man who loves the Lord and, and, and couldn't stand the thought of the Lord not being pleased with his life. And I think that's such an example to us. Number two, the way that Joseph speaks here in chapter 39 and the way he's going to speak in in future chapters in this story is so very different from the way that he seemed to interact with his brothers in chapter 37, if you were here two weeks ago, right? What we're going to start to see is that there's a change about him. He seems to be growing and, and maturing. The book of James in the New Testament says, count it all joy when you meet trials or hardships of various kinds. And you ask yourself, why? Why should I be joyful in hardship? And the passage answers, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
right? Trials are the fire that, that burns within us, a, a, a steadfastness. And Joseph in his life is being tested to an extraordinary degree. And, and what you get to see is that that steadfastness is clearly being produced in his life. You see it here in his words and, and in his actions. And so when, when people stay faithful to God, as hard as that is during moments and time periods and seasons of deep trial, over time, God uses it to deepen our maturity and, and to begin to go to work polishing our character. And we certainly see that in Joseph's life. And we're going to see more of it. Number three, Joseph's behavior towards this woman in chapter 39 is exactly the opposite of his brother Judah's behavior in chapter 38, which we looked at last week. If you were here last week, there's a a huge contrast that happens between these two chapters. Judah, his brother, is free as a bird, but he uses that freedom to dishonor God and to take advantage of a woman who is in a very vulnerable situation, right? Joseph, on the other hand, is not free. He's a slave, and yet he honors God and refuses to dishonor a woman who is perfectly content to take advantage of the situation. Obedience is possible even in the most difficult circumstances of life. You're struggling to be obedient in difficult circumstances. Study the life of Joseph. You see here that It's possible. And finally, number four, notice uh, what it is that Joseph does not say in this passage, right? In this this little sentence that he says, instead of saying, how could I do this great wickedness against God? He could have said, how could God treat me so wickedly as to put me in this terrible situation? And I think that what we find is that Joseph refuses to see himself as a victim. Joseph didn't have that mentality, even though he was a victim, right? Even though he had been sinned against by other people, he he doesn't blame God for his circumstances. And he realizes that even in this mess, God is still good. And I think that it was that belief that would enable him not only to overcome these trials and temptations that he was facing from Potiphar's wife, but to deal with all the wounds of his past, all the pain, all the things that have been said and and done to him, the disappointments he faced, the hopelessness of his circumstances in so many seasons of life, he saw himself as a beneficiary of God's blessing rather than a victim of God's cruelty. I think that when we find ourselves in a mess, at least when I find myself in a mess, my first temptation is sometimes to doubt God's goodness. And I, I, don't, I don't often doubt it in general. Like, I still think he's a good God, but sometimes I think, is he being good to me? Is he being fair? Well, Joseph apparently was prepared to battle those doubts. And I think that we must be as well. So, Joseph passes his test. Nice job, Joseph. Way to resist temptation from this woman. Now you can move on with your life and things can work out happily ever after, right? Um, I mean, things in this book keep going from bad to awful. 
And what we're going to find is that the testing continues. We find out a little more about what kind of woman Potiphar's wife is. And one thing we learn right away is that she doesn't take no for an answer. Time and time again, day after day, month after month, and and believe it or not, likely year after year, Potiphar's wife continues to plead with him and to order him and to do whatever she can to get him into bed. If you look at the timeline of the story overall, Joseph was in Potiphar's house for about eight to ten years, and that meant that Potiphar's wife continually repeated her attempts to seduce him for up to a decade. Uh, Joseph here is the victim of sexual harassment, very clear. In fact, it's sexual harassment in the workplace. And her strategy, it is, it really is, no joke. And her strategy is to simply wear him down year after year. And yet, Joseph continues, after all of that time, to resist her advances. And then one day, finally, the, the house is empty and the two of them are all alone. And she grabs him by the robe and she orders him again, lie with me. But Joseph's answer is still no. And He turns to walk away, but this time she holds on to his robe and he tries to step back, but she pulls him a little closer and her grip is tight and he realizes that the only way that he's going to get out of this is just to leave his robe behind. And so he wrenches himself out of it and he darts out of the room, very likely in his underwear. Now they say that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Potiphar's wife fits that to a T. She responds to this rejection by setting out to destroy this man. And I wish that I had time today to delve into her accusations against Joseph. First, she makes them to the men of the house, right? She, right away, she says something. She's got his robe, and he's in his underwear, and she begins to make accusations to them. Then later, she goes and she makes uh, uh, accusations to Potiphar, her husband. And what's interesting is if you look at the contrast in her words, the way that she phrases certain things to the, the men of the house and the way that she phrases certain things to Potiphar, you see that she's very deviously trying to manipulate both groups, but we won't cover that today. Anyway, she accuses Joseph of attempting to assault her, and as evidence against him, she produces his robe. And I think this is just a side note, but it's very interesting. This is the second time that Joseph's robe has been used to deceive someone, right? First, in chapter 37, his brothers use his robe to trick the father into thinking that Joseph has been killed. Now, Potiphar's wife uses it to trick her husband into thinking he should be killed. Talk about having wardrobe issues. I mean, Joseph must have been thinking, i got to stop wearing robes. I need to wear pants. That would solve a lot of problems in this story, honestly, if Joseph just wore pants. Anyhow, the deception works. Potiphar appears to believe her story, and although he could have had Joseph executed at that point, uh, he doesn't. He mercifully just sends him to prison instead, which means that he probably had some inkling of the kind of person that his wife uh, was and that perhaps he shouldn't trust her words completely. But anyway, what a terrible turn of events. I mean, what an unfair turn of events, honestly. Joseph's 
faithfulness to God seems to have backfired. That ever happened to you? You were faithful to God and it worked against you instead of for you? Instead of Joseph's behavior being rewarded by God, he seems to be punished. Well, we are told, though, that God is at work. In fact, once again, just like at the beginning of the chapter, the narrator assures us in in verse 21, if you look at verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And then it says it again in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was done in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And once again, we see this providence of God shining down into a very dark story. Joseph is sent to prison, but he's, he's not just sent to any prison. It says he's sent to the prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So what we see again is that behind the scenes, the pieces of the puzzle of Joseph's life are, are starting to come into place where we see the, 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 the outline of the puzzle board Joseph is inching closer and closer to his destiny, and yet for him it must not have felt this way. We're going to pick up next week. We're going to see what happens uh, next to him. And and I have to tell you, it's it's a roller coaster. His life is a roller coaster. Next week will be a roller coaster. But anyway, in conclusion, I want to jump back just for a couple more minutes to the question that I asked at the very beginning of... um, this talk, and that is the question, how do we really know that God was with Joseph? When we read this story, how do we really know for sure that God was right there along with him? Uh, Is it because we can see that everything in his life was good? No, right? In, In fact, much more of Joseph's life was filled with tremendous evil. So many terrible things had been done to him that were outside of his control that he wasn't responsible for and and didn't deserve. It's not that we look at Joseph's life and see the good and say, okay, great, God was there. Is it that we can know that God was present in Joseph's life because it all works out well at the end? Well, it does work out all well in the end. It's a pretty amazing story in the end. But I don't think that you can necessarily say that you can tell that God was present with him because of that. Someone might argue that it just kind of worked out that way by random chance, right? Bill Gates became the richest person in the entire world. Does that mean that God directly led his steps to become that person? Couldn't have just been the way that it worked out? Somebody had to be the richest person in the world, and it was Bill. But there is a reason that we can know for sure in this text that God was with Joseph. And the way that we can know that is very simple. It's because we're told it. We can know it because we're we're told. It it, it goes back to to verse 2 again. the, The author says, the Lord was with Jesus. Sorry, Joseph. And then in verse 22, sorry, 21, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love, right? This book that's inspired by God. It it tells us again in in 23, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, apart from these statements, we, we couldn't know for sure. 
Because in the story, it sure doesn't feel like God is with Joseph, does it? If you were Joseph, would, would you think it would be true? God has to tell us. God has to say it, and he says it here. So how do we know for sure that God is with us in our lives too? And I, I just want to suggest that ultimately the best answer to that question is that we too have to be told. God has to say it, and we have to be told because otherwise we will almost always look to the circumstances that we're experiencing in our life, whether they're good, whether we're on top, whether we're on the bottom. We will almost always look to whether or not life is working out according to the formula that we think it ought to work. That when I do good, when I'm faithful, when I trust God and love Him, then things are going to move forward for me and everything's going to work out fine. But if I love God and I trust Him and I obey Him and I give Him something that costs me and it comes back to bite me in the end, then I'm not so sure that God's with me. What are my feelings at the moment? Do I feel good about God? Do I feel bad about God? Do I feel positive about my situation or negative about my situation? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I hopeful? Am I depressed? What are my thoughts? Do I believe that God is who he says he is? Do I think it? Does it sound true? Does it make sense? Is it logical? We will always use our feelings and our circumstances to draw conclusions on whether or not God really is with us during times of trial especially or if he's turned his face uh, away from us. Well, Well, after Jesus came to the earth and died on the cross, for the sins of any person who would put their trust in him. And after he came to be our sacrifice so that through his death we could be granted forgiveness and life. After that, but before he rose again into heaven, he said to prepare a place for his people, an eternal home, something so much better than what we might experience now. There was a final set of words that Jesus left his followers who were standing there before he ascended into heaven and and that carries on to those of us who follow him even this day. Jesus' 12 last words. You know, the last words are are so often the most important thing that you want to say. They're they're what you want to leave people with. And, And Jesus' last 12 words were this. He said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' last words were, until the world itself ends, I will never abandon you. And if the world itself has not ended, then I'm present with you. I'm right there with you always. You might not see it. You might doubt it. Your circumstances might scream at you that it cannot be true. But he says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you're a believer in Christ, I hope you hold that promise dearly to your heart this morning and always. Father, the things that we read in the scripture so often seem too good to be true. Uh, We struggle with them, particularly in times of struggle and doubt and hardship. And yet I want to thank you that uh, we can know that your love is steadfast for your children. 
we can know that uh, you will not leave us until the very end of the age, not because we feel it, not because we agree with it, not because it makes logical sense to us or it doesn't, but we can know it because you've said it. You've told it to us. We can believe it because it comes from the mouth of Jesus' lips. And we just thank you for it. What would we do without our Bibles? How we would drift and wander and, and wonder. But we thank you for these truths, and we thank you that we have these truths throughout Scripture, not as just as statements, but you've given us examples of people who are living these things out. You give us examples of people who fail at them too, but in this case, we have the example of Joseph to encourage us. Thank you for the way that you were with him. Help us to trust that you are with us. And we pray that you would develop in us that same sort of tenderness of heart that flows out of your goodness and commitment to us so that we might live for you faithfully in that way that Joseph here models for us. We pray in Jesus' name.